Romans chapter 13. This morning I'd like to ask the question, how does a citizen of heaven really live as a citizen on this earth? Our high school and junior high have spent a whole weekend, Disciple Now weekend, really working through what does it mean to trust God with your entire life? That's a good question for all of us to be wrestling with. And what does that specifically look like, trusting God in the midst of a country that has a government that at times seems far from him? I mean, if you want to get people's blood pressure rising, you want to create some commotion, just bring up the subject of government and people's response to it. Evangelical Christians, they've got some understandable alarm. In fact, at times it could even seem like they're resentful about what's going on in contemporary America. And when you start looking at the trends, let me just throw a few things out there. Some of this will be very familiar with you. Like our public institutions and officials now sanction the alternative lifestyle. We've got same-sex unions. Now we have a huge push for the legalization of same-sex marriages. And it is happening faster than you can even think at times, how quickly this is all changing. And then, of course, we have reproductive freedom, a woman's right to have an abortion. That is an accepted viewpoint in our country. It is the law of the land, and it is supported by the Supreme Court. We have schools and government agencies that promote safe sex, and they do this, the secular sex education, completely ignores the moral and spiritual issues that always occur, and the fallout. Seems like they're just far more interested in how do we prevent the spread of venereal disease and unwanted babies. And then there's the whole idea of judicial fairness, and we seem to be almost in a culture now that we are exonerating criminals as victims of their environments, when in actuality the real victims are just kind of left. And then there's, of course, the pornographic literature and film and exhibitions seen as the true freedom of expression. And it is destroying the soul of America. I cannot tell you how many men's lives are being ripped apart and destroyed, and families, especially our young people, are going after like the 11 to 17 bracket. And then, of course, you know, we've got Christian business owners who just simply do not feel comfortable baking and decorating cakes for homosexual marriages or providing flowers for their special unions, and they're treated now as criminals for saying, I, I, really, I, I really don't want to take part in that. And then just recently, October 2014, Houston Mayor Anise Parker, she issued subpoenas to five local pastors. This mayor, Anise Parker, uh, she is a practicing homosexual. She demanded the sermon notes, emails, videos, and any negative comments about homosexuality or the mayor herself to be turned over to her. And she backed it up. If the pastors refused, then she was threatening to charge them with contempt of court and possible fines and jail time. And what you may not know is a couple months after that, December 2014, she was listed as the number one mayor in the United States, according to the City Mayor's Foundation, and the number seven mayor in the world. And then what causes a lot of consternation is we realize our tax money is funding this. This kind of behavior. And here we are. We're going through the book of Romans, and we see the amazing gospel of Jesus, all the 
implications of what it means to be in Christ. They come to chapter 12, where God literally calls us to a transformed life, united with Christ, not being conformed to this world. And we start wrestling with the question, what does a life shaped by the gospel look like, specifically living as citizens in our country? Now, let me give you some of the background of what Paul is writing. Um, You're going to find Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Paul is writing in this particular social-political setting. The book of Romans is written about A.D. 56. Okay, the, the imperial capital city is Rome itself, and that's where the letter, this letter, is directed to the Christians living in Rome. Now, Judaism was accepted by Rome as a permitted religion. Okay, and since they really couldn't figure out the Christians early on. They just kind of wrapped them in as some sort of sect of Judaism that they didn't understand fully. And yet Paul actually, in his book of Romans, shows the distinction between a Christian and a Jew. Namely, that they are placing their faith in Christ as their Messiah. And yet Christianity was growing to become suspect as being seditious. And for some pretty good reasons. The founder of Christianity is this Jesus Christ. And he had actually been convicted, or at least killed, as a criminal. And as was common of the day, you would actually put the charge over those who were being executed. Primary means of execution in Rome at this time is crucifixion. They did it a lot, did it publicly alongside Rhodes. And for Jesus, they put his charge. You know what his charge was? The king of the Jews. He called himself the king of the Jews. Hey, we got one king around here. We got the emperor. And so he was in conflict. And that was the charge against him. His followers are identifying with this Jesus, this Jesus, this king. They worship him as God. This, This created social upheaval. Every time the gospel started to go out, why, it created problems with people who were pagans, worshiping the pantheon of gods or even among the Jews, who are like, no way, we're not buying it that Jesus is the Messiah. And that led to all sorts of problems and social disturbances. And then, of course, you had people that made their livelihood from these different religions out there, like if you were a silversmith and you made all these idols, and now people aren't buying your idols anymore because they're saying they're worthless and there's only one true God. Well, that didn't make you happy, and now that your livelihood, your ability to put bread on the table and make a real decent living is being threatened, what do you do? You start riots. And they did. All this is tied to this Christianity, and specifically Jesus. And there may have been some theological reasons why Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote Romans 13, 1 through 7. When he said in Romans 12, 2, to not be conformed to this world, it is possible that Christians would take that as like, I no longer have to yield or submit to any governing authority but God. And so perhaps that's what was taking place. Let me give you also some historical background of what's taking place at the very time this is being written. In AD 49, Emperor Claudius had expelled all of the Jews out of the city of Rome. And Jewish Christians were lumped in there together and sent out. Now, some of them had started to make their way back, but there was a deep-seated resentment against the government of Rome. Activities like that have a way of fostering those kind of feelings. But then in the 50s, there's, there was a spectacular increase of these Jewish zealots. They were the political terrorists of the time. 
And they were preaching that, they were basically preaching insurrection against the Roman authorities, saying that we do not need to be under foreign domination because we are called to a theocracy where God's our head, and this yoke of Rome we must be rid of. And they were so successful in creating a stir among the people that from AD 66 through 70, Rome came down very hard on the Jewish people, literally destroyed Israel, Jerusalem, the temple. The last holdouts of this zealot movement uh, you find holed up on a place called Masada. You can still visit it today. And in AD 73, right before the Roman army eventually got up there and was going to take them over, they all committed suicide. And so this is the climate in which Paul is writing. The emperor at the time is Nero. But Nero had not yet begun persecuting Christians. He had actually started repressing other groups. He was still under the benevolent influences of Seneca and Burrus at the time. But that was about to change. There was a reprobate by the name of Ticolenus who was going to have a lot of influence in Nero's life. And the persecutions toward Christians that were going to be horrific and always remembered in the annals of history had not started, but they were just about ready to occur. For these Christians just were not going to find themselves in a position where they're going to bow down before some sort of image of Caesar, cast a little incense down, and call out that he's God. They were going to say, we simply can't do it because we actually know who God is, and Caesar is not it. So how are Christians to live Christ-centered lives as citizen saints? If you work for the government, how are you supposed to function? What is your role? And if you don't, what is our response to the governing officials? Well, leave it to God to address the issue and to spell it out with real clarity. As to how does a citizen of heaven live as a citizen on earth? Now, you're going to find it right here in Romans chapter 13. And let me begin in verses 1 and 2. If you want to know how you and I are to live as citizens on this earth, we have to recognize the establishment of government by God's authority. God is the one who established government. Look at verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, where there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So he begins by saying, we, Christians, were to be in subjection. That is the word that they would use for a military soldier who is completely subject to a superior. And what he's calling for is cooperation, loyalty, a willingness to obey. That's how we're to function. And the government, in all its forms, management, military, oversight, policymaking, legislation, enforcement, administration, it exists at many levels, and he makes this statement, God is the one who established government. He's calling us to be subject, to submit. That means we pay our taxes, vote in elections, we serve in armed forces, we obey the laws of the land. He doesn't tell us to avoid the government, like to hole up somewhere in some desert someplace, nor does he call us to be like a zealot and try to overthrow it. And 
He says we are to submit to the governing authorities. And that's not without regard to their competency, their morality, or even their reasonableness. You see, it is God who establishes the governments of the world. That doesn't mean that he is responsible for the sins of tyrants, but only that the authority to rule comes from him. And because he's the one who gives the authority, actually that authority will be held in account by him. But God is the one who gives it. There's only three institutions that God has established, as we have revealed in Scripture. We have the home, family. We have government, as we see here in Romans 13. And we have the church. And sometimes, when God gives good authorities, and certainly in our country we've, we've had a wealth of good authorities, he does it as a blessing. And the people are blessed and things go well. But oftentimes, there are evil rulers, and it's a means of trial or even judgment. I'm going through the book of Jeremiah, my own just personal devotional times, and it is striking that God calls, like, the evil king Nebuchadnezzar, the king ruler of Babylon, and he refers to him as a servant. And he's going to actually bring judgment through this super wicked man. He refers to him, actually, as a servant. You know, in a democratic culture like we have, society, um, we have the privilege of oftentimes nominating who's going to run things. And generally, people in office reflect the spiritual and moral character of the nation. Generally, the people that rule reflect the people of the society in which they're ruling. So, for instance, if you have a, a culture of deception, don't be surprised if you've got a huge liar that's running things or at the top of the food chain. Or the same is true if it's a materialistic society or violent leaders come from cultures that seem to have a lot of violence. But God wants it crystal clear in the minds of his people, I establish government. Remember in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, God made it crystal clear through Daniel when Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar, it is the Most High who is the ruler over the kingdoms of the earth. And he gives it to anyone he wishes. He is absolute, sovereign, supreme ruler. And he is the one who gives authority. Now, David seemed to understand this. Remember David? Before he was king, you know, he spent a good chunk of his life being hunted down by the king of Israel, a king by the name of Saul. I mean, it wasn't just like a personal vendetta, like Saul was going to personally go after him. He actually involved his entire army to hunt him down. And on several occasions, David had the opportunity of killing Saul, as did his men, but he always said no, because Saul is what? He's the Lord's anointed. He's the king. He may be bad, evil, far from God, but he is the king. And so we're at a situation at times, and we go like, how in the world? How in the world are these particular governing officials set up by God? I mean, you look at their decisions, their rationale, their values, and their behavior, and you're like, there is no way. <laughs> There's just no way that God would have put someone like that in charge. And that's because oftentimes we don't see how God can work his good and his will even through those who are seemingly evil or far from him. We are very limited in our perspective. And let me give you a really good example of that. If you and I, 2,000 years ago, witnessed the beating of an innocent man, 
beat him beyond recognition. Then strapped him to a cross and then nailed him to it. Stuck some thorns in his head. And yet he was perfectly innocent. You and I would just like, wait a second, that's totally wrong and we'd revolt. Some of you would try to step in and stop it knowing that you'd sacrifice your own life. But actually, God accomplishes our salvation through a wicked government who's going to crucify an innocent man. In fact, it's the reason why you and I are here today. In fact, we'll spend eternity worshiping the living God because of a work that was done that was horrendous and all wrong, and yet, as the nature of God is, he accomplished our salvation through that. And we are eternally grateful, though we hate how it happened. Remember um, remember the situation when uh, Jesus is being apprehended in the garden? And uh, Peter's like, no way. I'm going to stop this. And he pulls out a sword. Remember that? And Jesus basically told him, put your sword away. Why? Because Jesus understood this is how it is meant to be done. Prophesied, I'm going to fulfill it. You don't get it. That's because you're in the situation. But I am going to accomplish the purpose of redemption and propitiation through these acts that are just about ready to take place. It's almost as if God is saying, I want you to look at history and to see that I am able to accomplish my purposes even through wicked governments. I can do so through Rome. And I can bring salvation to my people. And I can bring the spread of Christianity through an empire that was going to turn all evil on Christians. God says, why don't you take a look at uh, Pharaoh? Pretty wicked guy, enslaved all the Jewish people. But you know what? It was through there that a nation was built and emancipated. It's as if God wants to say, listen, I can handle the current situation as well. So if you want to um, really function well as a citizen of heaven, living as a citizen on earth, you and I have to recognize the establishment of government by God's authority. Let me give you something else that you and I need to do. We need to respect the role of government in society. Government has a role. And in verses 3 and 4, what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's articulating how government is supposed to function. It is going to show God's intent. This is how it is supposed to work. And so you find in verse 3, he says, government, first of all, has a role of preventing the spread of evil. So he says, for rulers are not a cause for good behavior, but for evil. So even wicked, godless governments serve as a deterrent against crime. Okay? And he establishes them. In fact, the word fear is where we get our English word phobia. It's the idea you understand that the government has the power to deal with evil and wrongdoers. And so, like, if you don't want to face those consequences, you're going to avoid behavior that's going to put you in direct conflict with the laws and the leaders of the land. So, frankly, if you want to enjoy a life free from tickets, fines, trials, and imprisonment, follow the laws, right? But you're going to find that government is given for the preventing of the spread of evil. If you don't have government, what do you have? You have anarchy. No society can function in anarchy, where everybody does what is right in their own eyes. It's chaos. It, it doesn't work. And so God has established government, and one of their roles is to prevent the spread of evil. Let me give you another. And this one might just shock you. Like, you're kidding. Didn't even know that was in the Word. 
government has a role of promoting good. Look at what he says. Verse 3, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. The government is to extol the good behavior of its citizens, maybe even praise them. But look what he says, verse 4, for it is a minister of God to you for good. Government exists established by God for the promotion of good. That good is providing security, tranquility, and just for the general welfare of the people that live in their society. That is the good that they're supposed to provide. Now, notice that he refers to them as ministers of God. They may not even know God personally. In fact, they might be atheists. They may even hate God. But they still have a role and a function. They serve as ministers of God. And that means that, you know, if you can't respect the person in the office, you must respect the God-ordained office. We're going to have some government officials that are going to really try you. You've got, like, how in the world did they ever end up in a position like that? But yet, as believers, those united with Christ, those walking in the Spirit, we are actually called to recognize their purpose and even to honor them. You know, that's not always to say that, like, we always really appreciate the state trooper and his radar gun, right? It's interesting that he's laughing about that. Hmm, interesting. We'll keep reading the text here. But would any of us feel safe if there was no one law enforcement, just in terms of the speed limit? What would happen is like, yeah, you know, we should be able to drive about probably about 10 miles faster than what's posted. And that's kind of what happened for many of us. But there should be some like, I think I should go about like 80 miles faster than what is posted. And they would. And we would have streets of terror. We'd have a lot of maimed, dead people. Why? Because it would be chaos. Or if taxes actually weren't withheld, or we didn't have to pay our taxes, do you honestly think that out of the goodness of everybody's heart, we would all kind of chip in, and we'd support our road systems and everything else that the government provides, and we'd actually care for certain people? Would that really happen? Mm, probably not. So God has given government, and one of its purposes is promoting good. And that means that as believers, you can actually look to your government for good. There are going to be certain times that you can look to your government for protection and support. It is a good that government provides. And you see the Apostle Paul doing that. Uh, when he was being tried in Caesarea before Porcius Festus, he actually appeals to his Roman citizenship and appeals to Caesar himself for justice and a fair trial. You know what he's doing, don't you? He's exercising what he's writing. He understands that one of the roles of government is to do good, providing that kind of protection, protection, security. He's, he's actually appealing for rights that were actually given to him from God, ultimately, but actually expressed to the Roman government. Now, looking out for your legitimate rights and interests is part of what government is supposed to do whether they be presidents or prime ministers, senators, members of parliament, county commissioners, supervisors, members of the city council. Because I want you to see something. Look at verse 4. It is a minister of God to you for good. I want to tell you something. If you are a Christian, you are in 
the ministry. Did you know that? You serve God. If you are in any capacity in the government, law enforcement, governing official, local, state, national level, I want you to know you are a minister of God. You're one of his servants. You've got a huge role. That means when you show up tomorrow at work, you need to see it differently. You see yourself as, I represent God in this place. That means that you want to do your work to the glory of God. You want to use your gifts, your time, your resources well, right? That means that you want to do your work with excellence, with efficiency, with reasonableness, and do so with the wisdom of God so that you can bring honor to Christ. You want to do your job well because you are a minister of God. Just notice how many times he reinforces that. That's who you are. And as a Christian, we should shine in these roles. At the White House prayer session that was called right after the 9-11 tragedy, we had these various leaders that came together, one of them was, which was Gerald Kishnick, who was the president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And what he did is he got up and he read Romans 13, and standing by him, was, or sitting by him, was the president. And he told President Bush that he had the divine calling in this crisis. I want to read you what he said. Mr. President, I have just come from the World Trade Center site in lower Manhattan. I stood where you stood. I saw what you saw. And I smelled what you smelled. You not only have a civil calling, but a divine calling. And he went on to say, you are not just a civil servant. You are a servant of God called for such a time like this. And Bush nodded, and he said this, I accept the responsibility. Friends, government has a role. Not only a deterrent to evil, but it is also to promote good. And you need, if you're in the government, to understand your role. There's one other thing that government does, outlined right here in Scripture, and that is that it punishes wrongdoers. Look at verse 4. It says, For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. God says, I ordain government to punish evil. And notice what he says. He refers to it as bearing the sword. The sword represents the government's right to inflict penalties and punishment on wrongdoers up to and including capital punishment, bringing death, whether in war or actually the death penalty for a crime that warrants it. And that's why a sword was, that was the symbol. It was the most common means of bringing about an execution. Now, do not get the idea that, well, the sword is some sort of just innocuous symbol of power. If God really wanted to just give a symbol of power that would exclude punishment, perhaps even capital punishment, he would have used something like a scepter, which we would all recognize as kind of like a right to rule, something about power. No? He used a sword. Now, when we bring up capital punishment, I can tell you, there's a lot of strong feelings on the issues. Even Christians have differing views on whether or not capital punishment should be 
exercised by the state. I tell you, it's a very serious and it's a sobering issue. But I challenge you to develop your convictions based on the Bible and not your best understanding of what you think morality should be or the evolved ethics should now be this. We've moved past this. Bottom line for us, friends, is Romans 4.3. What does the scripture say? When we move away from that, when we start redefining, reinterpreting to move away from that, we're on a very slippery slope that leads to disaster and people far from God dressed up as religious people. So what does the scripture have to say? Very early on, Genesis 9.6, God establishes the governing of humanity. And in Genesis 9.6, he says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God he made man. People are made in God's image. They are precious and sacred in his sight. If you intentionally murder someone, he says, what must take place as that person then forfeits his own life? Or another. Jesus had this exact same view. Remember that situation where Peter uh, was going to try to take matters in his own hands when Jesus was being apprehended? So Peter, you know, he pulled out his sword, right? He pulls it out, and he goes for the head of the high priest. He's not a real great aim, and he gets an ear instead. Remember that? And so Jesus heals the man that had just lost his ear. And then he made this statement to Peter. Put your sword back in its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. You see, the penalty for killing Jesus' enemies, Jesus is saying, is that you will lose your life. That's how I set it up. See, people's lives, they're sacred. Did you know that? Created in the image of God. Even if they're far from him, they're still made in his image. And if you take someone's life, you intentionally murder someone, then you forfeit your own life. You give up your own life because you willingly took the life of another. Now, I know there's people are saying like, hey, wait a second here. I believe in the Ten Commandments. And it says, thou shalt not, what, kill, right? And, and, I, and I like when people raise those things. And I'm like, really? So where are the Ten Commandments? Uh, on the Bible. Can you show me? Generally can't, all right? In fact, they're written in two places, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Does the text say, thou shalt not kill? Actually, the text says, thou shalt not ratzak. Thou shalt not murder. He actually gives the Hebrew word to murder, to intentionally take or to kill the life of another person. That's what he says. Because he's made it crystal clear, if you murder someone, then you are going to put yourself in a situation where you'll forfeit your own life. Now, when Paul is writing, people that he's writing to are very familiar with the establishment of a government that can take the life of someone who does wrongdoing, like, for instance, murder someone. Swords were carried in front of Roman officials, and it indicated their authority over life and death. Government officials in past times would wear a sword. Did you know that? So let me show you this picture here of King George III. Recognize him? Okay. King George III, he was in charge of the British Empire during the American Revolution when he lost all the colonies. He actually had lots of losses. 
Do you notice in this very famous painting that he is wearing, i got a little red circle around it, he's got a sword. Do you see that? He's not wearing that sword because, you know, this one artist, uh, this painter, he's a little sketchy, and he might attack me, and I need to have a sword and like just in case he comes after me. No, he's not worried about that at all, is he? No, that's a symbol that he is a ruling monarch. He's a governing official. In fact, until recent modern era, uh, people that were ambassadors to other countries, they wore swords. Why? Think they're going to go like some sort of sword fight? Yeah, that's not a good idea. No. It was a picture and a symbol that they were governing authorities. Paul seemed to really understand this. This whole idea of, like, capital punishment. Remember in that scene when he's before the Roman governor Festus? He makes this statement. He says, if then I am a wrongdoer and I have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. If I've done something wrong, if I've done something wrong enough to warrant capital punishment, he says, I don't refuse to die. I understand how God has established and set up morality and the consequences of taking another person's life. If I've done it, I, I willingly will lay down my life. I will die. I understand it. I get it. Now, friends, you and I are not in a position to take matters in our own hands. People hurt you. People murder someone that you love. Just remember, as we've gone through this, Romans 12, 19. He says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. I will take care of it. He most certainly will take care of it in the judgment to come. But he very well may take care of at least some of the earthly consequences of this through governing officials. And if in the case of of a murder, that person would lose his life, that's how he set it up. And if you're still questioning this, uh, I want to give you one other text. Numbers chapter 35, verse 33, where it says, You shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land. And no expiation can made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. You see, government has a role, a pretty serious role. And you and I, if we're going to really walk with God as citizens of heaven, living as citizens on earth, we have to respect the role of government in society. And then finally, and we're going to look, about, look at this next week, we need to, if we're really going to function well as citizens of heaven, living as citizens on earth, we need to respond obediently and honorably to the government of our country. You know, the Apostle Peter said much the same thing. Let me just read this to you. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. He says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God. Are you interested in God's will? He says, For such is the will of God. That by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Your life becomes a testimony if you actually take this to heart and do it. And he says, act as freemen and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. So let me ask you, is there anybody here that has 
ever broken a law, a regulation? Um, I'm the only one? Okay, okay, that's why some of your heads are going down, right? Problem is, maybe some of you just didn't get caught, right? Uh, I know. We all have that one. In fact, our inability to even follow through with this passage, which has become some of the forgotten words of the Bible, shows us just how great a need we have for a Savior. We all missed the mark, right? We have all violated what God has said on this text alone, right? We need a Savior. Praise God, He provided one. One who lived perfectly and became our perfect sacrifice. You can have forgiveness just like I have when we trust in Christ and Christ alone. And the whole idea of submitting to governing authorities and some of these regulations are just mind-numbing, that's, that's going to require spiritual power, isn't it? And God provides it. He provides it in the gospel because he provides it through Christ. Now, next week, we're going to look at, um, are there any exceptions to submitting to government? We're also going to look like that, are there any biblical grounds for war or like to deal with groups like ISIS and their atrocities? We're going to take a look at that. But I want you to see something from this text. Because of our relationship with Christ, citizens of heaven should be the best citizens on earth. After I got out of college, I was working in the insurance world and uh, worked with a guy I really liked. His name was Bob Schisler. He was good, good hard worker, smart, funny. Uh, I remember one time he was telling me about a, a situation where he and Lori hadn't been married too long and they're actually on their way to church and, and he was like trying to get there so it wouldn't be too late, you know what I mean? He was speeding, cruising. You know, it's the right foot that is the last part of your body to be sanctified, you know? And uh, so he's speeding up church, and lo and behold, he caught the attention of a police officer who pulled him over. And so he's sitting there, and he's got Lori right next to him. He goes, hey, Lori, hold the Bible and just put it on your lap, okay? So here they are, and the police officer handles himself, real kind guy, um, treated him with respect and everything, gave him the ticket. And then the police officer said something to this effect. Hey, I noticed that Bible that you have on your lap there, ma'am. You might want to read Romans 13. And then he turned around and left. Friends, you might want to read Romans 13. If you want to live a life without fear, you want to live a good life, obey the laws, pay your taxes, don't take advantage of your neighbor, don't rob banks, stop at stoplights, try to stay within the speed limit. And use just common sense. Because you see, friends, the, because of our relationship with Christ, the citizens of heaven ought to be the best citizens on earth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for a great passage of Scripture. Hard, difficult, yet it is clear. And we have a much better understanding of government, why it's here, what it's supposed to do, and how we're supposed to respond. And so, Lord... We confess our sin and oftentimes even wrong attitudes. We want to be holy. We thank you for the forgiveness found in Christ. For those who have never trusted him, would they not only see that they're lawbreakers, but there is one who gives ultimate forgiveness, and that's in Christ. And would they pray with me and say, God, I turn from self and sin, and I trust in the Savior. And Lord, 
Through you working through your spirit, through these scriptures, would you develop our convictions and shape our lives in such a way that we bring you great honor. For that is our highest desire, your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.